host, Christina Previtt, with Wake Up Call. But we haven't met before. I was a divorce lawyer in New Jersey for 15 years. I'm currently the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a divorce law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I'm talking to people who have overcome their fears and forged their own path in life. They had a wake-up call to make a radical change. They did it, and so can you. My guest today is Allison Williams. Allison is the founder of the Williams Law Group, a seven-figure law firm located in Short Hills, New Jersey, which focuses on divorce and family law, as well as child abuse and neglect matters. Allison is recognized as a top professional in her field and nationally known as the Dyfus Diva. Allison is also making her mark as the law firm mentor. After building her own seven-figure law firm, Allison's real passion is teaching other lawyers how to do the same. But Allison didn't start out where she is today. It's been a long Long road of growth and evolution. She shares her journey with us today. Thank you so much for joining me, Allison. Thank you for having me, Christina. I can't wait to get started. Of course. And I think that you have quite an audience that perhaps has not heard much about your personal story. And we're going to focus a little bit more on that today. And I know that your fans and your audience are going to be really happy and engaged by that. So thank you. And it's quite an interesting story. I actually have said in the past that I think for a lot of people, there is sort of one pivotal event in our lives where there was everything that came before that and then everything that came after. But I feel like for you, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like for you, it hasn't just been one pivotal event. It's been like a whole bunch of them, right? Like an evolution. Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I've kind of had, um, you know, what tends to happen is you climb to the top of a peak and then all of a sudden you fall off a cliff. And on the way down, all those, you know, bumps and bruises and and bloody scrapes, (laughs) they lead to the next thing. And so I've had a lot of next thing moments in my in my life. Definitely. Well, why don't we start at the beginning? That always seems like a good place to start. And the beginning, I'll say, is what made you decide to become a lawyer? Okay, so a lot of people say that they wanted to help people or they they wanted uh, to be a part of the bigger fabric of society when they choose to be chose to be a lawyer. But I actually didn't. I'll be honest. I was a very broken individual and I felt powerless. And so the idea of becoming a lawyer was a way for me to gain power, not necessarily intrinsic power for myself, but more just the idea of not feeling uh, that my voice wouldn't be heard because I figured if I was a lawyer, I'd have a status. People would have to listen to me. Now, anyone that is a lawyer knows that that's not true. <laughs> yes, I can vouch for that. <laughs> you know, you go into a courtroom, a judge doesn't have to listen to you. Adversaries don't have to listen to you. But at minimum, you have uh, the a great deal of power. You do have the power to influence people. You have the power to affect lives. Uh, and you have the power to have a voice, even though you have to use that voice judiciously and appropriately. So I had to learn that process, but that was why I wanted ultimately to be a lawyer. And there is a certain status associated with being a lawyer. Would you say that was part of it for you? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's there's either I mean, what I what I like to say is most lawyers become a lawyer for one of three reasons. They either want money, they want power or they want, um, you know, to to do that kind of heart centered to help. Uh, feeling. And I wanted really mostly just the power and the power comes with the status. So yeah, the fact that you say lawyer and people's eyes kind of perk up a little bit, that title gives you a lot of access to resources that you wouldn't otherwise have. I agree. And you said you were broken. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, I didn't actually come to realize this until much later in my life, but I was I was what I would consider to be a victim of emotional abuse in my household. 
And I had one parent that had his own issues. And so those issues kind of got visited on me. And my mother was kind of a silent acceptor. Uh, and she didn't intervene. She saw it as her place to just kind of be the peacekeeper. So she'd pat me on the head and say, you know, well, he is who he is. Get over it. And, you know, that was very traumatic for me in ways that I didn't realize it. So I had a lot of repressed anger by the time I became an attorney. And I started to work through those issues in therapy and then later in coaching. But um, that was really what was driving me, even though I didn't know it. Would you say that when you went into law that you had a perception of yourself as broken? Or was that something you thought about later? No, no, no. I definitely didn't perceive myself as broken. I I don't know that I really thought about myself. In fact, I don't think most people really, until they start intentionally looking at themselves, I don't think most people actually do think about themselves. I just... I was going through life. My expectation was that I was going to arrive at a better feeling. And, you know, when you don't feel good about yourself, you think having the next thing is going to get you there. So you want the next title. You want the next career accomplishment. You want the next dollar. You want the next degree. And you feel that once you get there, you're going to arrive at happy. And every time I got the next thing, I was still not happy. So I said, all right, well, if if a degree is not enough, then I've got to get a great job. If a great job is not enough, I've got to get a promotion. If a promotion's not enough, I have to start my own business, right? You're always seeking that next dopamine hit of authority from other people until you realize that it's never going to come from someone else. It has to come from inside. That's what I keep hearing. Uh, but, but I think sometimes when you it, when you just hear that, when you hear the words, I think you don't really comprehend it until you have some of these pivotal experiences that you're talking about. Oh, definitely. I mean, if anybody had told me this even five years ago, honestly, I, I started to be exposed to kind of the personal development world um, right about the time that I started my law firm. And, you know, I thought it was complete BS. You know, no one could tell me that that was anything other than a story that people were selling you in order to sell you a coaching program or sell you a book or sell you a, a, a convention or whatever. Um, but it really is true that, you know, everything comes from within. So if you see yourself as a broken person, that's how you're going to show up in the world. So where was the turning point for you? How did you go from, oh, these are just snake oil salesmen, to, wait a minute, maybe they know what they're talking about? Well, that actually came through starting my law firm. So um, I had created, a, I, should, I guess I should note this, I'm a family law attorney by trade. And one area that I was drawn to, even though I didn't know why, was helping people involved in the child welfare system. So I became, um, you know, very interested in that area of law. And there weren't really attorneys practicing in that area unless they were getting a few hourly cases uh, through the public defender's office. So I really kind of started it in the private sector and then just scaled it in the private sector. So then I decided, well, I've got about $500,000 in individual book of business. As a lawyer working for someone else, I wanted to go take that and scale it in my own law firm. Started my law firm and thought, okay, I'll just do this lawyering thing with my own name instead of someone else's name. And it doesn't quite work that way. Yes. <laughs> we learn the hard way when you go out on your own that you actually have to run a business now. Yeah. It's not just practicing law. Yeah, that whole running a business was very inconvenient for practicing yes. law. <laughs> but I didn't know that at the time. So I was practicing law about 70, 80 hours a week as a lawyer because I just loved it. And I had a statewide reputation and went to my bosses and said, you know, I need somebody to help me. And, and the discussion about hiring also, of course, came with, you know, I need a promotion. I, you know, I can't be your associate training up your next associate. And I didn't get the answer that I wanted uh, fast enough. So I said, all right, I'm out. <laughs> and next thing you know, I have to do it all. 
and didn't know how to manage it all and very quickly fell into a state of now instead of working 70 hours a week, it became 80 and then it became 90. Uh, And then I kind of had the first major pivotal moment as a business owner when one week I had a beautifully filled week like I always did from sunup to sundown, I'm working. And just kind of like stroke of luck on a Thursday, all of a sudden my entire Friday calendar got canceled. One client was hospitalized, so their matter had to go off. Uh, An adversary requested an adjournment on one of my cases, so that had to go off. And then something else happened. But ultimately, I was going to be in the office all day on a Friday for the first time in months. And I thought, wow. That was a (laughs) gift from the universe. Yes, that's a gift from God. Thank you. And I I figured, you know, at that time, I lived about 40 miles due south of my office. Uh, Very poor choice to set up an office that far away from home. But long reasons why that had to happen. Anyway, I I said, all right, I'm going to let myself have the luxury of sleeping late. I'm going to sleep until seven o'clock in the morning. (laughs) And I'm not. Wow. Sleeping in. Sleeping in seven o'clock in the morning because I used to be up at five so I could get to the office by six. So I was going to sleep until seven and I was not going to stay any later than 6 p.m. So for me, that was going to be a light day. And I was really excited about it. But, you know, it's kind of like you get the buildup in your body of all the tension and excitement about something that's before you. And you're so eager to get there that, you know, tension just builds in you. So by the time that I left Thursday night, I was so kind of wound up about this gift. It was almost like I was I was thinking I was going to arrive at Shangri-La the next day. And I got in the car and I was so eager to get home because I was going to give myself the luxury of a full night of sleep, which I hadn't had in weeks. And I, I, I get in the car and I just start racing and I start racing and racing and racing. My, my pulse was racing. My energy was racing. My heart was racing and my car was racing. And I started driving faster and faster and faster. And at some point I remember looking down and seeing that I was over 90 miles an hour and I didn't really care. I'm like, it's the parkway. It's nighttime. I got to get home. I got to get home. I got to get home. And next thing I know, I open my eyes and I am one quarter centimeter away from a guardrail. And, you know, I don't remember moving the steering wheel. (laughs) Um, I believe that God moved the steering wheel. But at some point, the car very precipitously gears off to the left away from the the guardrail. And I start kind of swerving all over the road. Thank God no other cars were there. But I stop the car or the car stops. And I get out of the car and just kind of have my breakdown on the side of the road. And I, I started crying and screaming and God, what the F is wrong with you? What am I doing wrong? Why are you punishing me? And it was just like all of this victimhood pouring out of me feeling like, you know, I had somehow arrived at someone forcing this life on me, even though I had made all these choices for myself and said, you know what, I'm done with this law firm thing. It's, it's for the birds. So very quickly sold myself to the highest bidder, <laughs> called friends at three large law firms. All of them were willing to interview me, um, got the offer that I wanted, and was actually headed to accept the offer when, uh, once again in the car, you know, strange things happened to me in the car. Uh, I'm, I'm in the car, and I pull over on the side of the road, and I said, I can't do this. You know, I, I started this business for a reason, right? I, I, can't, I couldn't really verbalize for you why I started my law firm, um, my ego would have said I started my law firm because I had the best credentials in my law firm. And it was offensive to me that, you know, I had a, st- a status of associate, even though I was generating more money than two of the partners. But that really wasn't the reason, right? Money, money has never really been my primary motivator. So I said, there's something that caused me to start this business. I don't want to let it go. So I decided I wasn't going to. And, but I said, if I don't figure out how to fix it, 
it's going to kill me. Like, literally, yeah. it's going to kill me. It was a wake-up call. It was it was a wake-up call. How prophetic, yes. So, uh, anyway, I, I ultimately started looking online, found a coaching company to help me, and I started into the world of coaching. And as a coaching client, very quickly started to learn about universal law and how the world works and reframing my thoughts around a lot of different things, including myself. And probably the most pivotal coach that I ever worked with is a guy named David Nagel. I know David. Yes, I know you know David. So anyone that knows me has heard about David because I very much credit David with kind of really saving my life. I mean, I've always been very clear about the fact that um, when I was a practicing attorney and, and before I started my law firm, I had a very severe depression. And I also went through a bout of alcoholism. And those parts of my life were helped to be healed by a therapist who is uh, the first person that saved my life. But David is really the person that kind of helped me to reform my life into something worth living. Like I was, I was alive when I was out of when I was in recovery, when I was out of depression, I got to the place where I was satiated in life. You know, life wasn't the the wild swings of kind of bipolar emotions of being happy one moment and miserable the next moment. But I was afraid to live. I was afraid to be too happy because I said, if every time I get happy, you know, stuff happens. Well, do you think that maybe something in your upbringing had you believing that when things are happy or stable, that you have to do something to bring chaos into it? I don't know that that's it so much. It wasn't, you know, because I had a stable childhood. You know, um, while I call my father emotionally abusive, you know, I had two parents that went to work every day. We went to church every Sunday. The lights were always on. We had family vacations. So we had a life that looked like what most people would say was a healthy life. But where I think I got that from was that I very much did not want to be my parents because I had a lot of resentment that I hadn't dealt with. So I was trying to create the opposite of what they created. So I went through about it being very financially irresponsible because my parents were the example of responsibility. And I went through about of being um, very emotionally erratic because they were kind of emotionally even keeled. Uh, so there was a lot of reactionism to my childhood, but um, I kind of didn't learn it. I kind of just rebelled against it on a very subconscious level that I wasn't aware of. And by the time that I got to the point where I was looking at life, I said, okay, what my parents created is stability, so that's what I'll create. And now I was aware of it, so I said, okay, I got to be stable. And stable seemed safe, but you couldn't really have the ebullient highs that I used to have. Like, you know, when I was very high, I was creating a lot of powerful things. In fact, even when I was in dark moments, I was creating powerful things because I tell people this all the time. You know, it was at a at the darkest point in my life where I was going home every night to an apartment where I had let all the light bulbs go out. I literally would go home to the dark every night um, and I sat in dark rooms. If I was at home, it was kind of the comfort of the darkness. And when I went through that time period, that was the year of 2011, that year I tried 31 cases. I won 30 out of 31 trials. That's incredible. And for the non-attorneys, that it's very difficult to get any kind of trial experience, even as a litigator. So that's really quite astounding. Yeah, you get, you get aggressive and angry enough and you just push every issue to the point of trial and you just don't settle anything. Uh, so between domestic violence trials, child abuse and neglect trials, one one issue plenary hearings, I was just I was trying cases all the time. Were you enjoying that? <sighs> you know, it's interesting. I, I've always loved the courtroom. The courtroom is the only place that by the time I was a lawyer, it was the only place I ever really had self-esteem. 
Like I did not like myself. I I was probably on the border of hating myself, but I knew that I was a good lawyer and that was the only place that I had a sense of value in my existence. Like if you had asked me, would you like to leave the earth? I would say, well, there's no point in my being here. So sure. I mean, it really wouldn't have even been a question, but for the fact that I was doing amazing things with child abuse and neglect. I mean, I'm getting people's children out of foster care. I'm helping people who were addicts also help to help them get to and through recovery. And so it's, 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 it's one of those things where I knew that there was a purpose for me being here and I just kind of latched on to that. And there was so much self-esteem associated with that, that it was the antidote to all the things I didn't like about myself. So um, I knew that I had to get out of that dark place. And when I got out of that dark place through therapy, I just said, all right, not going to be too happy, but I'm also not going to be too miserable, right? I'm just going to live life. And it was okay for a while. It wasn't awful. It was just kind of numb. Um, but I got up every day, paid my bills, went to work, you know, saw my friends. And at uh, this point, did you have your own business? Yeah. By this time, you know, I, I had stopped drinking and I was out of, I was in remission from depression for quite a while before um, I started the business. So by this time, I'm at a place where I'm celebrating and I'm having a lot of great successes. You know, end of 2012 um, was when I was on the Katie Couric show. Uh, dealing with the issue of child abuse and neglect. I saw that. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of great things were starting to happen. And I was just trying to keep my emotions set on don't get too happy or or, or it's going to be taken away from me. That's that's sad, though, because then you're not really being present for all the good things that you're creating in your life, right? Because you're so afraid that something's going to happen to it or that there's there's misery just right around the corner. I just know it. Very true. It, and it's but I didn't realize that at the time, because for me, I mean, I had had like a series of swings. Like um, I remember in 2010, I became the youngest attorney ever to become certified in um, in any discipline. But in my discipline is matrimonial law certified by the Supreme Court as a matrimonial attorney. So I had that that kind of feather in my cap. Right. I was the youngest. I was the first African-American. And I took that and said, wow, look at this. Right. And then two months later, a judge filed a grievance against me for something that I consider to be specious and we're not authorized to talk about it. But it was thrown out. But I had to hire a lawyer. I had to go through all of the stress of the only thing that mattered to me in my world was lawyering. And that could be taken away from me. That was your identity at the time. Yeah. And so everyone that I talked to said, don't worry, this kind of thing is not going anywhere. And I still just couldn't believe that. I I just I felt like God was punishing me because I got this wonderful award, this wonderful achievement two months earlier. What happens is this happens right afterward. Right. And it's you know, my life has just kind of run in those circles. Like I remember um, I had been promoted as a young associate, I was promoted to senior associate in a pretty substantially sized law firm, over 45 attorneys at the time. And for me to get that at five years out, six years out, whatever it was, was very remarkable for that firm. I think I was the youngest attorney ever to have that title in that law firm. And I was being groomed for partner. And then ultimately, I had it out with a partner the next year, did something kind of stupid. And ultimately, I got fired. <laughs> in the height Do of the recession. Do you want to talk about what that was? Um, I will say that um, I don't like to go there too much only because I don't want to denigrate the attorney that was involved. But let's okay. just say that uh, one night me and a martini met email <laughs> and uh, we had words with this person. And That happens. <laughs> I think we can all relate to that. Yeah, drunk emailing is never a good thing. Um, so anyway, I, I told the person what I thought of, uh, the person and I shared that with other people. And I shared that really with people that I was advocating for, 
But one person that was not really in our group in our department found this email and spread it around the office. So it became now this salacious gossip. And I had to be the example because, you know, you can't have a big law firm where you let some little peon tell off one of the partners. So that whole hierarchy and kind of, you know, staying in your place. And I was never one to stay in my place. I was always a very bad follower, a good leader, but a bad follower. So ultimately I was fired and I was fired in the height of the recession. (laughs) I was like, all right, well, Uh, And that happened shortly after I had been promoted. So I had just had these series of life is really phenomenal and then life is really awful. And since I was used to that, when I got out of a very dark place in my life, I said, okay, no more of this. Let's be thrilled because when we're thrilled, then we're miserable and stuff happens. So to stop stuff from happening, illogical as it is now to hear it, my logical mind went to, all right, we just we got to stop getting those highs because we'll stop the lows. And I didn't like that that was my place, but I kind of accepted that that was my place. And when I found David, he helped me to understand the law of polarity and that, hey, these wild swings are happening because there's these wild swing abilities in everything that we do. There's miserable and brilliantly happy in everything that we do. And you have to learn how to use the law in a way that you can direct your emotions and behavior toward the place that you want it to be so that your life can be a series of happy. And that doesn't mean you're not going to have sad moments, but that just, you don't have to like precipitously fall off the cliff when you go up into the skies. Yeah. Well, I just want to say when you were speaking, I was thinking of that quote, I forget exactly how it goes, but it's something like women who follow the rules rarely make history. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just thinking about that as you're speaking. Um, How did you find David? I mean, I'm curious how you went from, not believing, because I know so many people like this, that, oh, I can't believe you go to those David events, you know, he's just trying to sell coaching, and he doesn't know what he's talking about, and, like, basically, we're all dummies for going. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I guess, did you just reach a point where, I guess, you were just ripe for what he was teaching you? Well, I think, you know, as with anything, coaching is one of those things where it's not concrete until you experience it. It's very hard. Like even now that I'm a business coach, it's very hard for me to convey to someone what I do, because what most people are used to, especially lawyers, is you're used to going to, quote, a seminar or a workshop where someone on stage is going to give you data and a workbook and you're going to leave. And sometimes that data is presented very well and you're excited and enthused by it. And sometimes it's mediocre, but you get the workbook and you go home and you get your credits. Coaching is very different than that because it's very much helping you to uncover what's already within you. So you have the answers. You just don't know that you have the answers because your mind is trained in a direction away from the answers that are within you. So what ends up happening is someone is asking you questions And you're answering, but then you start to have a shift in the way that you're answering when someone can guide you in a different direction. And and if you kind of liken it to lawyering, it's very much like cross-examination. I mean, it's not not an adversarial process, but when someone's cross-examining you, they're asking you questions to lead you somewhere, right? And coaching does that in a way that really is very open-ended. And it's a, it's a very ethereal process when you go through it. So I was just at the point where I was tired of being tired, Because even when I first started with a coaching company, I was getting the tools to be able to hire some people and, you know, manage money differently and organize my business. But even that was not giving me the fulfillment of a breakthrough. Like I I just wasn't getting 
I wasn't reaching the place where I wanted to be. And other people saw me as successful. That was the thing that was always crazy. Like, if you asked me, was I successful? I'd say, well, no, because, you know, I only did 1.5 million and we, you know, we had plans for, for 1.9 and so I failed. You know, that would be my mindset. Yeah, have, have you learned to not be so hard on yourself? I have, but, you know, it is still a work in progress. You know, I'm a very goal-oriented person. And so when I set a goal and we don't get there, you know, that that crushes my ego a little bit. Yeah, and I just have to say, because I don't think I've ever told you this before, and for the people who are listening that aren't already familiar with Allison, she is renowned in the state for being the Dyfus Diva. That was originally, I think, how you came to be known. And if anybody, any attorney ever had a Dyfus question, they called Allison Williams. There just wasn't anybody else to call. Like, we just knew that you're the one. Like, you were, you're were, you going to know the answer. And I think, actually, that's how I introduced myself to you. I called you when yeah. I was a young attorney, and I had a Dyfus matter. I had no idea what to do with it, and that you were very gracious, and you met me for lunch, and walked me through it. And I'm still very grateful for that. But in New Jersey, that's who you go to. You go to Allison Williams. And I've actually said to many people, if I'm ever on trial for murder, (laughs) Allison does not do criminal defense, but she is the one that I want doing my trial because I know she's going to be all in. She's going to invest 200%. She's going to do whatever she has to do. And I'm going to have the very best representation. So thank you for that. Of course. Absolutely. I think that. Thank you. I mean, I thank you for being here and talking about this experience. Um, But I think probably if you ask most people in our in the legal community, I think they would agree with me. So you really do have a wonderful reputation. I know you sort of know that on an intellectual level, but there's so much more to it. And now you're evolving, not just as an attorney, but now you're becoming known as the the law firm mentor. That's your coaching business. And you are becoming known also in legal circles as having grown an amazing seven-figure business, uh, learning management, management of people, and teaching other people how to build their businesses. So I want, we've skipped around a little bit. So you, you were working at a firm. They were undervaluing you. I can't curse, so <laughs> I'll skip that part. <laughs> then you moved on to being a partner with someone else, and that didn't exactly work out the way you, you had expected, and that was sort of short-lived, right? Yeah. Um, when I left my employment, I joined with a partner. And my partner and I, just so you know, we're friends now. Good. So um, we did not have a toxic relationship. So it wasn't like a partnership that was fraught with problems. We just really wanted different things. You know, I I don't think I was ever really in tuned with what I wanted. And so my partner was um, more experienced than me in terms of the years of practice and owning a business. So I kind of attached myself to someone with more experience. And I think a lot of a lot of lawyers do that, you know, the fear of I can't do it on my own. So I'll do it with someone else. But it is very hard to have a healthy partnership because you will always have an intuitive desire. Many times we're not aware of what that is. We don't speak what it is. So when you put it with someone else, you're in a constant state of compromise. And so it's just it's a different it's a difficult um balance to reach and it's sort of like a marriage it is but you know with a marriage at least you you come into it knowing that you are creating something together that you are coalescing your desires with another person i think with business i don't think that many people think of a business the way that you think of a baby you know when you 
when you give birth to a baby, you're pouring into it all that you are and you're exposing it to experiences and people that will give it what it needs in order to become a productive member of society. With your business, it's very much the same thing. You can choose to expose your business to higher level thinkers, higher level planners, strategic thought through strategic planners. Um, advisors and consultants that are going to make it into something one way or another. And every philosophy that impacts business is inherently going to cut out something else. So if you choose your mom and pop accounting firm, it's very different than if you choose a top 100 uh, you know, uh, accounting firm. And they're just going to do things differently. Even though accounting is accounting, there's a different philosophical bent on how you spend money, how you organize thought, where you invest. And people don't really give as much thought to that because the practice of law is so grueling that we're just focused on, I want to be in law and business happens around it. But really, when you start a business, you are in business and law is at the epicenter. But business has to be the focal point in order for the law to flourish. Yeah, and I think I realized this when I started my own business, my own law firm, that you can't, it's not enough to just be a good lawyer. I think a lot of people have this mentality, but I'm a good lawyer. I'm just going to continue to do good lawyering and, you know, the people will come. And I think, especially in the world we live in today with social media and the internet, unfortunately, that just doesn't work anymore. It might have worked back, you know, 50 years ago, but it just doesn't work now. So you do have to be more savvy and you have to learn how to run your business. So how long were you in the partnership with the previous partner? Uh, we were we were together for seven months. Um, we were together essentially from January through July. Uh, and we divorced uh, over pizza with our accountant <laughs> one Friday afternoon. And then the following Monday, which was in August, um, I was off on my own. So, so it was sort of like Britney Spears going off to Vegas to get married and then <laughs> coming back and realizing she made a terrible mistake. Maybe a little better than that. A <laughs> little better than that. It lasted longer than Kim Kardashian's short wedding. That's true. That's so, true. <laughs> okay. Not that that's our standard. So then you moved on. You started your own firm. You, so I'm going to, you know, I don't want to speak for you, but we were just sort of like, I don't think this partner thing is for me. I'm just going to do this. I'm going to do it on my own. Well, I mean, to be clear, it's not that I decided necessarily the partner thing uh, wasn't for me. It was that we kind of had an explosive moment and it happened and it happened almost instantaneously. And then we separated ourselves. And then I realized, holy crap, I'm on my own. And you know, it was funny, the very first meeting that I had as a sole owner of a law firm, before my before I even got my LLC papers in the mail, um, a accountant, uh, my accountant set us up with uh, ADP. So the rep from ADP came to my office and she starts going through the stuff. Now, mind you, my partner uh, was always in business. He had been in business for over a decade. I can't even remember how, almost two decades by the time we got together. So, you know, he knew a lot of the, the minutiae of just the, the fabric of a business. Well, this woman comes in and starts telling me, all right, you need to elect this or that. And I said, well, what's the difference? And she started going through all of the lingo. And at some point, like, I just remember the white light came and, like, my eyes glazed over. And I put my head down on the table. And she tells me that I sobbed for about 20 minutes before she, you know, just at some point in time got up and escaped. I just remember I put my head wow, down. Wow, that's sobbing. quite a description. She escaped. Yes, she escaped because she, you know, what do you do when you're sitting here? And I mean, just think about you as a lawyer. A client comes in yes. and you ask them a question and they put their head down and just start crying for 20 minutes. You know, probably you're not going to get up and walk out, but you know, you're kind of like, what, what do I do? Yeah. <laughs> Can I leave the room and come back? Yeah. So anyway, that was tra a traumatic start, but it, it leveled out. And, and after it leveled out, 
Um, that's when I kind of said, all right, well, now I own this thing. I've got to make a go of it. Started. It was awful, in my opinion. It was just far too much work. Um, a lot of solos go out with a few clients and are trying to get more clients. That wasn't my issue. By the time that I went out on my own, you know, I was a $500,000 run rate attorney with, you know, more than enough clients, but I was so afraid not to take in new clients. So I was constantly marketing and constantly bringing in too, <laughs> too many clients and I was working like a slave. So again, I, that had, that's when I decided to sell myself and then, you know, kind of. Yes. You're like, I'm done with this. Yes. When you did that, what, what were you thinking you were going to go do? Well, I was going to go do me at someone else's law firm. So Unlike a lot of people, I mean, now that I'm in the coaching space, I hear about some of the atrocious treatment that many lawyers have experienced at the hands of their employers. I didn't have bad employers. Every single law firm where I worked with someone, I am friends with the person that hired me. I still consider the the, the attorney that fired me that kind of sent me over the cliff is Donald Lemuro, and he is absolutely my best mentor in the world. I think the world of him. You know, so I didn't work in sweatshops. I worked at great places. And I was always a good lawyer and didn't really have a problem with meeting billable hours, didn't have any problems following rules. You know, I didn't fit because I was always urgently seeking more for myself. So I didn't know the place of stay over here and not put yourself at, at equipoise with someone higher in a hierarchy. But outside of that, you know, I could have worked in a law firm forever. All that I needed really was the ego stroke. Like yeah. if you had given, if, if the partnership where I worked had given me the title of partner, they didn't know this, but I wasn't even asking for more money. Like mo money wasn't the issue. They could have said, look, if you're a partner, you're going to have to share an X, Y, Z expenses. So we're going to have to cut your pay. I'd be like, sure, fine. I just wanted the title, you know? And so it was important to me. And the fact that they didn't give me the, you're worthy and therefore a part of us, we want to protect you. That hurt me. And so it was, I carried that forward in everything that I did. Like even when I hired people, I hired people, some people I paid more than market rate because I'd rather have somebody that I thought could do the work. Now, that was also a poor decision because <laughs> people that are underpaid can do poor work. People that are overpaid can do poor work. Yeah, it's, it's not funny how we connect everything to money all the time. Like oh, God, your employer yeah. thought you wanted more money, but you didn't. Yeah. We somehow relate someone's value and how good of an attorney they are based upon how much they're charging or how much we're paying them. Absolutely. But a lot of times it really doesn't have anything to do with the money. Yeah. And I tell people that all the time. Like, the, you know, when you are trying to resolve a problem with someone's not being happy in your business, the last thing you should do is just throw money at the problem and see and hope for the hope for the best. I mean, you really have to have a concerted conversation and get to understand the person and what the person's desires are. And that may be more money, but oftentimes it's a lot more than that. And it's it's the evolution of the person that you are that you bring into the business that's going to make the business more healthy. I've learned that the hard way. Sounds like you have too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of times it's, you can have a job and be making a ton of money, you know, whatever that means to you and still be very unhappy and want to leave. Absolutely. So I think that's very telling. Um, so, so what, what do you think was this sort of string that was like pulling you along? Cause you're kind of like, you're just kind of moving along, you know, go from the law firm to partner and then you start your own thing. You just sort of characterized it as ego. Do you think that's all it was? Well, ego was driving me for a long time. Okay. So I was looking for validation in a lot of different ways. You know, when you, you know, I have to bring who I am into this conversation. So, you know, I'm a black female. 
you know, we don't have a world that looks at black people like it looks at non-black people. So you have that scar when you come into the world. And then you have the female I'm going to also call it a scar because even though we have the Me Too movement, which is a reaction to some of the injustices of women, there is still a status that orients women as being the helpers to men. And so I didn't have the helper gene as my fostered state. My state was always the natural born leader. And so I kind of grew up in a world, especially because I was raised in the South, I grew up in a world that was telling me there is something intrinsically wrong with you, that you don't want to be found by a man and be his rib and be his support staff. Your goal should be to have a job that can support yourself in the event that he beats you or leaves. But your real primary focus should be to find someone to be a good support staff so that you can help him to become something more. And when you do that, he will be nice enough to financially support you and you will make some children and live in a house. And, you know, and I just I never wanted that. I always wanted something big for myself. I always needed to create And so I, for a long time, I felt there was something wrong with me. Like I I went to therapy and I said, listen, you got to fix me. You got to make me into my mother. You got to make me into someone who, you know, goes out, gets multiple degrees by the time she's 19 years old, gets a job as a science researcher and decides to chuck it all to become a teacher so she can make less money than her husband. Like that's what I'm supposed to desire. And I don't desire that. So there's something wrong with me. And it took me a long time. I like even the world that we live in now still kind of has that you know, woman as helpmeet if you're in the religious world or woman as partner to man as opposed to two equal partners mindset. And because that wasn't who I was, I didn't really know how to be in this world. I always felt like there was something dysfunctional with me. And so because I was battling that, I was looking for validation and I figured, well, if I'm not going to have the traditional, I meet a man, I get married, I pop out some kids... (laughs) And then I have, you know, the happily ever after. The script. I call it the script. Right. If I don't stay on script, then I at least have to be exceptional at the non-script. And for me, the non-script was becoming an attorney, becoming powerful, rising to the top of my career, owning a business, having a profile, all of those things. And so anything that got in the way of those things, those non-script things, was a, it was a trigger and it was really a threat to my, my being. And so I, I didn't know how to deal with that. And then I kind of got out of that. I grew out of that really with the help of David, uh, as well as other coaches, to understand that was a dysfunctional place inside myself. My subconscious was wired around the idea of seeking love from achievement. So now I'm a very achievement-oriented person. I don't know that that's ever going to go away. <laughs> but and that's not always about getting love, right? I mean, it, maybe it some component of it was for you. Yeah, it's not It's not truly about getting love. I mean, now I'm really much, I'm very much about, you know, I want to achieve this, but I also want to achieve this so that I help other people. And, you know, I've evolved as a human being now. So, you know, you can't really work in the area of child abuse and neglect and deal with broken, fractured people who are... Uh, who have been horribly physically, sexually, emotionally abused all their lives and are now visiting that upon their children or being accused of that. Uh, You can't deal in that world and not have empathy and compassion for people. So all of that is within me. When I see people, I almost always see their brokenness before I see their strength. And that kind of guides me in the world of helping lawyers because most lawyers that I know became lawyers for some component of dealing with not feeling like they were enough, being told that they had to achieve, it was their requirement to achieve, and having the expectation that once they got that degree, that they would be able to do something and have more of a voice than they actually had. And so 
not saying every lawyer, certainly there are differences, but a lot of us have that. And so I identify with that. And when I see that in a lawyer, I want to help fix it because it made me healthier and happier and life got better. And so I know now that whether I have a million dollars or, you know, I, I end up on welfare, I still have this part of myself that's just a genuinely happy human being. That's wonderful. There are people that never achieve that. Yeah. Or, or even, yeah, it is. It is sad when you really think about that. Um, a coach that you and I both know has said frequently that personal development precedes professional development. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. Um, you know, what I will say is this. There's, there's kind of a dichotomy out there that I think is in the professional development space that on the one hand, you tell people you have to evolve yourself in order to become the person who can have the thing that you want. So you have to evolve yourself to become the business owner that can own the business that you want, right? A multi-million dollar mindset is required for a multi-million dollar business. You can't have a Walmart mindset and go off to (laughs) Bergdorf Goodman and have that type of business. But that being said, I also know that I was highly dysfunctional and very um, chaotic and not really structured and didn't really have a good mindset when I started creating a lot of money. So I tell people all the time. So what you were, what you call, is it an unconscious? I always forget what the expression is. Unconscious competent. That's right. I was an unconscious competent, but I'll tell you this. I mean, if you create from your broken place... Right. You can create a whole lot, but you have to be very broken in order to do so. So what I was actually doing, which is what caused me to get to the point of becoming an alcoholic and what caused me to be severely depressed is I was broken a little bit when I was chasing dollars and degrees. Right. And the more broken I became, the more dollars and degrees I chased. So and that just happened to come with a lot of money. So the more broken I was, the more money I made. So it's not true that you can't be broken and make a lot of money. You just can't enjoy it because you have to break yourself in order to get to the place where you have it. It's sort of like Kanye West saying, I can't take my meds because I won't be able to make amazing music anymore. Correct. Right? Something like that. And and to be clear, you know, there's something to be said for that because, you know, it was in the darkest places when I was the angriest that I was fighting the hardest for people accused of child abuse. People that had not done anything wrong who were just accused and have had to be shepherded through this system where uh, there's somebody saying, okay, we're going to put you in these 15,000 services. We're going to spend the tax dollars on getting you fixed because uh, your kid said something that can't be verified, that no one says happened, that there's no documentation of. And by the way, this is going to take a year before you get your kid back. But hey, we'll just dangle your kid over you. And if you don't do what we say, we're going to you know, take your kid forever. That offended me. And that made me fight. And I fought because I was angry. So I do think that there is something to be said for creating from the place where you are. You can create miraculously beautiful things. I got hundreds of children out of foster care as a broken human being. But once I evolved and became a happier human being, I created a lot more because I had at least learned the mechanics of how to create. And so I didn't have to drag all of that baggage and all of that negativity with me. I could now create from a happy place. So I created more happiness as I was creating more money. So you feel do you still feel like you have that passion? But you don't do you go to court anymore? So I do have a couple of cases that, you know, clients that I've had for years, in fact, um, one of my one of my star associates, Victoria, is actually uh, she got a case before the U.S. Uh, not U.S. Pardon me, the New Jersey Supreme Court, and I'm going to argue it with her. So, you know, I very much love being in a courtroom. I don't know that I'm ever going to give that up. Truly, um, do I still have a passion for the work that we do? Absolutely. Um, so, for the record, you would do my murder trial. <laughs> Well, I do think that that might be a little problematic when you kill whoever you're going to kill. 
Um, I would put you in the hands of some really great criminal defense attorneys. I don't think I would dabble uh, in murder for my first uh, non-family law trial. Uh, but, you know, I will tell people this, that, you know, the the fire that's within me to fight for people is never going to go away. You know, but now it comes from the desire to help them have more, not from a desire to validate myself as a lawyer because I can prove to people how hard I can fight. So, And, and it's a slight distinction, in fact, you know, I've been kind of afraid, you know, kind of as I hit my epiphany that people would encounter me and not perceive me as the same good lawyer because now there's not kind of that angst. But um, that I don't think you need to case. worry about that. Yeah. And, you know, it hasn't been the case. And I've I've kind of asked around, you know, but there's you know, there's there's good and bad to everything. And I tell people this all the time that, you know, anyone that knew me. Even, let's say, seven or eight years ago, you know, I was a very aggressive adversary. You know, I was never going to be nasty to you just for the sake of it. But I was going to fight everything that you put in front of me just because that's what I thought my job was. People were afraid of you. Still are, probably. (laughs) Well, and, you know, so while I'm not a cream puff anymore um, and I never really have been. You know, there there is a different version of me that now shows up. And that version has some wisdom that just comes with understanding human nature. Like, you know, I could understand when I was reading about psychiatric diagnoses, I could break down for you what the DSM-5 says is consisting of narcissistic personality disorder. But seeing that and being able to identify it and see how it plays out in people's lives is not just now an analytical process. It's a it's a process that's informed by having gone through my own mental health issue. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of taking who you were and recognizing that it can evolve without thinking that it's no longer there anymore. Yeah, you're never done, right? You're never done with your evolution. Even right. if you have the pivotal event or you have a bunch of them, you're never done. There, there could be more pivotal events for you. Absolutely. I mean, I just started. I mean, even though we talked about law firm mentor just a very little bit, you know, I started it in January of 2018, uh, sitting on my sofa New Year's Day, said, all right, everybody, I'm now a business coach. Ding. And then I said, all right, I got to sell something. So was I, it sort of impulsive? Not impulsive, spontaneous. I think that's a better word. It's a little bit of both, um, which sounds like it's kind of chaotic and, and, and free for all. But it isn't like it's, it's guided by spirit now. Like I, I very much now allow God to speak to me and allow myself to step into what he's telling me to do. And I don't say that in like a woo-woo sense of I heard voices in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've always been a person who prayed um, and I would just listen and I would hear things and feel things and my intuitive sense would say it's time for me to do something, but I would be afraid. You know, if I, if I was, if it was time to fire somebody, oh, I can't do that because X, Y, Z. Or if it was time to hire somebody, oh, we can't afford that. So we can't do that yet. And now if I get a sense that I'm supposed to do something, I do it and I just trust that it's going to work out. I think that's amazing. That can really, that it's in and of itself can be a pivotal event in someone's life, I think, not having that fear to move. And you must encounter this with your mentoring clients because don't a lot of them have this fear? I know I experienced it. I don't want to be where I am, but I'm afraid to leave that to go where I think I really need to go. Like, for instance, leave a firm that they're where they're an employee and start their own business. Yeah, absolutely. You know what what I think most of us and I put myself in this category because I still own my law firm and I still encounter this all the time is, you know what you know. Right. So even if what you know is not what you want you at least feel that you have some level of comfort and familiarity with what there is. And as soon as you step in the direction of something that's new, it could make you a lot more successful or 
it could make you a lot less successful. So I think most people catastrophize, especially lawyers. You know, we think the sky is falling, Chicken Little is, is always there. So we think it's going to go in the wrong direction. We get scared. We We're stop. fixers. Yeah. We're fixers, right? We have to fix everything. Right. And we're very conservative as a lot. You know, we, we tend to have much more of a desire of consistency and stability than the entrepreneurial spirit of creating and taking risks. And so even amongst litigators, you have a higher risk profile in litigators than you do in transactional attorneys, at least from the data that is out there in the various different profiles, the Myers-Briggs, the, the Colby, the DISC. You know, you're going to see more of those types of risk-taking behaviors. We have a culture in the law around stability and consistency and, and, and staying still. So as soon as you step in the direction of something that's new, if there's no roadmap, people have a really hard time saying, I will step and just trust that it will work itself out. So that's where I come in. And a lot of people feel confident in working with me because I've not just done what they're doing. So I can say, yeah, it's scary. There is no roadmap, but step in this direction. And these are the things you're going to encounter and let's plan ahead. But I also can say when you don't have a roadmap, here's what's going to likely be the consequence if you don't move i.e. it is just as scary to stand still as it is to move because as soon as you stand still and time moves forward, you're now falling behind. Yeah, well, David always says you're either growing or dying, right? Yeah, 1,000% true. It is, it is. If you actually think about that, that, I think that's why people feel the compulsion when they're in madly in love to get married because it's like, oh my God, we're in love. We have to do something. You know, we can't just exist and just be in love. Well, at least that's probably another show. But <laughs> that's sort of what I've thought is you, because you see these people that are in this new relationship and everything's wonderful. And then all of a sudden they're getting married and you're like, but why? Why? What's the hurry? If you're going to spend forever together, what what does it matter, you know, when that starts? But again, that that's probably another, another day, show. another conversation. Um, so... We don't have a lot of time left, and I want to give you an opportunity to really tell our listeners what you do as the law firm mentor. So law firm mentor is growing um, very rapidly. You know, we're we're, we're going to end this year as a $500,000 company in year two. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot that we offer and there's a lot that we offer in different stages. So there's private coaching and group coaching and trainings that are combined around a model of different intensive business retreats. Um, my retreats are two-day immersive, 16-hour experiences. So no one comes and sits passively. You actually work through ac- activities and behavior uh, right then and there. Um, and then around that is the support that's necessary for you to learn a topic. So you come and learn about marketing. You learn about sales. You learn about people. And you learn about systems. And you get that, but you also get before and after support so we can understand what you're doing in your business and how to fix it. Now, beyond that, um, there are breakouts, you know, so for depending on what a person does with me, they may get more of one or the other. It really just depends on what type of program that they buy. And then next month, we are launching my personal joy, which is our membership site. Uh, For lawyers that are not quite sure that they want to dive into coaching just yet, they don't really know what it is, they can't really wrap their mind around it, I want them to have an experience of what it is to actually start to learn from someone who's actually done it and is currently doing it and has expertise and and connections that can actually bring the the data you need, but also give you the Q&A and the coaching and support around that. So the membership site is going to launch. If you're interested in the waiting list, uh, you can go to my website, uh, which is lawfirmmentor.net, all one word, L-A-W-F-I-R-M-M-E-N-T-O-R.net. 
And on there, we have the waiting list data. Uh, those are also, it's a great place to get information about our services. We have a free Facebook group. A lot of information is shared there. Uh, so I welcome people to join our community and see what it's about. Well, I know that I've been the one to reach out to you whenever I'm having some crisis in the office. And you always seem to be the voice of reason. You have the answer. And I think a lot of it is because you've done a lot of this yourself. You've built the seven-figure law firm. You've experienced a lot, as we all just heard. But I think also because you do care and you do have a passion for it. How did you realize that passion? What made you say when you were sitting on the couch that night, like, oh, I'm a coach now? <laughs> had you been thinking about that? Well, you know, it's interesting. What what ended up happening was the, the coaching company that you and I both were in together, um, I was there and I kind of outgrew the program. They really were, in, at the time that I was there, they were working more with smaller companies. I know they now work with some larger companies, but um, I had kind of outgrown the company. And so I would kind of pour out my ideas onto a forum where other people would start to see it and people saw my ability to teach. So what happened was lawyers started reaching out to me after I left the program and said, hey, can you help me with, I read something you wrote like a year and a half ago, I want to put something like that together. And I started essentially coaching people for free. Um, and then Facebook kind of found me when I had only five to 10 hours a week consumed by running my law firm. I then said, okay, well, now I have time. Let me just kind of allow myself to experience the world, see what my passions are. I've never been somebody to go too long without working. Uh, so I'd be at the office playing on Facebook, but the playing was giving people strategic advice in Facebook groups. And I started to see that that was also, um, you know, the people were just reaching out to me even more so like, you know, when I got on Facebook, people would just kind of like send me messages and say, oh, my God, you posted about this. Do you have something for? And then I realized that what I was essentially doing was exactly what I've now created into a business, which is coaching people, training people, asking concerted questions, giving them guidance, giving them support, letting them know that there was a way out from the problems that they had. There was really no reason why I needed to have um, anything other than just the passion to do that. So I kind of started looking at the frameworks of coaching that I had been exposed to. Um, and now I study coaching just like I study all of the business mechanisms, uh, mechanisms that made me successful in growing my multiple seven-figure business. I now have put that together into a perpetual state of uh, giving and coaching to my clients. What would you say is the biggest uh, mindset issue that you see? The biggest mindset issue that I see in terms of what other lawyers are experiencing? Yes. That is a very good question. There's probably a lot of them. There are a lot of them. There must be one that keeps popping up. There are a lot of them. I would say that it is probably one that most lawyers will not acknowledge, but it is probably the question of, can I have without having to work more? Most lawyers come into the idea that they do not have to work more with such skepticism that they reject the idea. So they will self-sabotage when it starts to get easy because it feels somehow dishonest, inappropriate, uh, not right. It, It feels energetically wrong. But really what I tell lawyers all the time is every time that you are adding something to your plate, you should be taking something off your plate. And the things that you add to your plate should be adding more value. So if I add a $2,000 value item to my plate and I take off a $200 value item, I am adding more to my business while working the exact same number of hours. 
All right. Well, you know, we're we have to wrap up. I feel like I could easily do another 55 minutes with you. And maybe one day I'll convince you to do that, to come back on. Um, but I, I want to ask you one question because I usually like to do a Proust questionnaire at the end. But we don't have a lot of time. So what is your idea of perfect happiness? I would say that perfect happiness is getting to a place where you do everything that you enjoy to do in your daily life and you do it without any regret, without any fear or without any hesitation. I think that's great. I think I would agree with you 100% there. And if you would like to learn how you can do that with your law firm, please contact Allison Williams. And thank you for listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. If you'd like to learn more about me, you can find me at ChristinaPrevitt.com. Thank you. See you next week.